Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Good morning, friends. Um, some of you, yeah, that was, that was... Guys, I've cried like seven times already. I mean, I cry usually when I teach, so who knows what's coming. But goodness gracious, I was not, I was not expecting. We didn't talk about Matt inviting people up to share testimonies and stories, and yeah, I was just bawling. Um, for those that don't know me well, my name's Dave. I know what you're probably thinking. Yeah, it makes sense that this guy, he looks like he would talk about fasting, right? <laughs> I feel like I was thinking about it the week leading up. I just felt like every day this week, my hair and my beard and everything was just getting more and more disheveled and crazy. And honestly, like, I have no idea what's going on back here. Um, but I guess I, it's, it's like method acting. I've just been really getting in the part this month. So, I don't know. Uh, genuinely, it's just completely pragmatic. If you don't cut your hair or shave, you just save a lot of time so you can get more done. So, it's not holy, it's not spiritual, um, it's utilitarian, yes. Uh, if you have zero to four kiddos, youngins, they're free to go hang in the kids' room back down the hall. Older kids are welcome to stay and join. So, we are diving in part two to fasting. I'm shocked some of you came back. Fasting is not exactly a sexy, fun thing to talk about. Uh, and in all honesty, all jokes aside of me looking like, you know, this John the Baptist-like intense figure. Really, I'm just trying to look more like Charlton, I think, secretly, <laughs> subconsciously. Um, but a true story that happened last week. Some of us in the community have been experimenting with some rhythms of fasting during Lent. And it was a Wednesday morning. I've been fasting Wednesdays, like dinner to dinner, from Tuesday night to Wednesday. And we have house church, so it's kind of fun to break the fast with everyone. And it's literally 8.30 in the morning, drop kids at daycare. I am stopping by Chick-fil-A to get a bunch of breakfast for this meeting I'm going to. And as the checkout person is asking me how many breakfast sandwiches I want, I'm literally in my head thinking, okay, there's going to be six of us at the meeting, so I need five. And I go, six. And I load them up with six tater tots and get them in the bag. And the whole drive, all I can think about was how I just ordered myself a breakfast sandwich, even though I'm fasting. And we get into the meeting, and I put everything out on the table. And the whole, no one knows this is going on. This is totally in my head. The whole time, I'm just sitting there thinking, don't you dare eat one of those breakfast sandwiches. <laughs> and everyone grabs one, and it's just sitting there. It's just sitting there. And I swear I blacked out at some point in the first half hour of the meeting. And next thing I knew, like my beard was covered in Chick-fil-A sauce and I was eating a breakfast sandwich. <laughs> so the humanity and the reality of these practices, you know, I mean, last week I made fun of Matt or last month I made fun of Matt for his uh, convincing himself that a Dairy Queen blizzard was a liquid when he was fasting. And so I felt appropriate to shame and embarrass myself as we started this time. But some of us, not everyone, no shame if you haven't had the capacity, health, energy, um, 
or whatever, just the energy to try fasting this month. But a lot of us in the community have been. And so I think it feels appropriate to then reflect a little further now that we've actually tried it. The first part of this message last month was, I mean, I really gave, I gave my guts, cried a bunch. And if you want to go listen to it, you can check out the recording on our website. But my whole goal was just to kind of arrest us and shock us into the dissonance that fasting has been an integral part of following Jesus for Christians for pretty much ever until the last two centuries. And there's a lot of cultural shifts and reasons, I think, for why that is. So we didn't even really talk about what fasting is other than not eating food. That was like the only teaching we actually had on fasting. The rest of the teaching was just trying to expose the strangeness and that we are the anomaly in 2,000 years of people following Jesus. We are the strange ones who don't think that that is something we should integrate into our way of practice. So today we're going to reflect on actually why we fast. So we're going to, now we have some dirt under our fingernails. We've hopefully tried it out a little this month, and we're going to reflect on the why behind it. So uh, this is just a reminder. Um, I'm updating the website with this as we go, but in this kind of series, we're going through six practices. And the goal is at the end of this, by sometime in the summer, we will kind of have put out there an invitational rule of life. So if you consider yourself a committed member of this church family, we'd say, hey, these six practices, you should be in and out of season, always be flexible and adaptive to the stage of life, season of life, but you should be trying to integrate these into your walk with Jesus. So we're on the third one of fasting, so there it is. Fast once a week, a meal, a partial day, a day. Use the extra time for prayer and give away the money. Um, so we'll talk about that more today. Let's see. Okay. So I'm going to start with reading a, a scripture. And to save time, I embedded all the scriptures right in my notes. So if you want to try and follow along and keep up, you can but you might not be able to. We're turning to Acts 9. This is kind of the famous story of Saul to Paul. Uh, so Saul is traveling on the road to Damascus. And I'll pick up right here in verse 3, Acts chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Then, I'm skipping ahead now to verse 17, uh, where God comes and speaks to Ananias, a fellow follower of the way. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So obviously, maybe an obscure text for fasting, doesn't even mention the word fasting in there, but I think there is a, if, if we hear nothing today, there's a fundamental idea that I want us to 
kind of anchor deep in our soul today. And it is this, that fasting is to be done in response to encountering a sacred moment. The natural human response to a sacred moment is to not eat or drink, or at minimum not eat. And I think one of the biggest dangers in fasting is that in some circles, in the few rare circles of Protestantism where fasting is actually in vogue, I think the danger in those communities is that fasting becomes this kind of coercive, manipulative thing that we do to try and like strong arm getting some result or breakthrough or miracle, right? It's almost seen as like a mechanism or a formula for twisting God's arm into doing something. And I think that can get really unhealthy really fast. And so what, uh, what I'm suggesting, and I'm not alone in this, a great little book on fasting by Scott McKnight, I highly recommend. A lot of the kind of reflections I'll be pulling today are just coming from this book. You don't have to read it. I basically read it so that you don't have to, and then I'm giving you some of the spark notes today. But what Scott McKnight highlights in there is that in the biblical story, the moments of fasting are very rarely or seldomly someone doing something to coerce God to get some breakthrough or result. Fasting is almost exclusively and always the natural response to encountering a sacred moment, right? And this story of Saul is, I think, maybe one of the most beautiful ones that we can relate to as followers of Jesus, right? He, Paul is a murderous, hate-filled zealot. And he's riding on a, on a donkey or a horse, or maybe he's walking, we don't know, but he encounters the living Christ in some supernatural manifestation, and he is knocked on his butt to the dirt, stricken blind in his body, and his natural response, right? Jesus does not command him, now go to the city and don't eat, right? His natural response to this life-altering moment of encountering God in a new way is to prostrate himself in prayer before God and not eat or drink until God moves or tells him what to do next. And I think this begs the question for us as modern folk, if we do not feel that way, if we, if life, if we do not experience life in such a way that we don't naturally respond with not eating, is it possible that it's because we've become so inoculated and numb to the sacredness of the moments that are passing by every single day? Is it possible that there's something in the kind of the cultural water, the cultural anthropology of how humanity is defined and how it's embodied and the way of life that our modern age practices? Is there something that is actually working against us and disconnecting us from our body, trying to disembody us? So I'll give a, a little like thought experiment here. And this is not, I'm not trying to shame us or pick on us, but I remember early on when I moved to Denver, Matt and I would talk about this often. And Matt and I and many in this room have experiences in lots of different parts of the body of Christ or the church, experiences in lots of different cultures around the world. And I remember moving to Denver and attending worship gatherings of churches. And I have never in my life, maybe in a little bit of my upbringing in Minnesota, um, but I've never in my life seen 
worship that is so disembodied, so non-expressive. And, and sometimes I, again, there's no guilt, there's no shame in that. It's not like, you know, I'm not going to show up next month with like, I don't know, a box of flags and get everyone like jumping and dancing around. Maybe we should, I don't know. But, but right, uh, the arts and the creative expression of a culture communicate what we believe about our humanity. And there is a disembodiedness that Matt was alluding to earlier, actually, in Western Christianity in general, where the life of spirituality, the life of following Jesus, gets relegated to more of an intellectual ascent or an intellectual philosophy than it is actually a way of life, an embodied practice, let alone an expressive embodied practice. And I know there's some other cultural factors there, but if I go to Africa every summer to teach in an internship um, in Zambia, a leadership internship, and man, like, they, I don't know what, it's no diss, but like, they know how to dance, they know how to move, they, they are in tune with their bodies, and they are free with their bodies in a way that I am not. Like, it, I mean, every time we gather here for worship even, it's like conscious choice for me to stand up and be like, <laughs> oh, 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 we're doing some adoration. Yep, woo, adoration. Like, it is conscious choice because in my natural disposition, I want to just like live in a cave with some books. And, and I say this self-indicting, like I am, I am like the chief person of this, of falling into this trap of Christianity becoming an intellectual endeavor that's disembodied from real practice. There's more fun cultural things we could do. Um, but I'll just give a couple little simple things, and then I'll move us on. <laughs> I think this is ingrained in our Western culture. Thomas Edison, the, basically the person who took electromagnetic force and turned it into what we know as electricity, he said, the chief function of the body is to carry the brain around. And I think there's something about that idea that is so steeped into our culture that we don't even see it. I think many of us believe that, even if we've never said that. And I think it's a reason why in this kind of cultural moment, we see such a rise and a people gravitating to things, especially in our city in Denver, what, what do people gravitate towards that is new? Things like yoga, things like climbing, things like the outdoors. I think people, when they experience a reconnection with their body, it's like getting water and they realize, oh, I haven't had that. Like, and I'm not making, we could have a lot of comments and conversations about yoga and the history and blah, 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 right? Um, don't, really just come talk to me if that's <laughs> uncomfortable for you. But. Like, I know multiple friends, my wife, will go do yoga, and she'll be praying, and she'll be like, she'll start weeping, crying while doing yoga. Because something about connecting her body to her heart and her feelings and her mind engages and, like, re-revs her up and puts her in tune with what God's saying again. So, that's a whole nother teaching. But I think we have inherited a distinct dualism between the body, flesh, the heart, and then the soul, spirit, mind. We have inherited a cultural dualism that pits those two things against each other and separates them in an unhelpful way. And I can't, I'll just read this line I wrote. 
Is it not a great irony that we as Christians believe that the greatest transformative event in human history was when God put on flesh and sacrificed his body and that somehow through that atoning sacrifice, the forgiveness and the liberation that it offered has changed not only humanity but the cosmos forever. At the very center of the Christian way is the belief that the sacrifice of a body changed history forever. And yet somehow we do all these gymnastics and turn it into a philosophy to just be believed in our heads. So, let's sit in this a little more. If we believe Scott McKnight's uh, thesis and what I'm kind of advocating today, that fasting should be a response to a sacred moment primarily, and then we leave the results and what's going to happen from that up to God. That's not for us to control. I'll get, I'm going to offer us uh, six examples of what a sacred moment might be and how we might, the motive that we might respond with fasting. So first one, pretty obvious, I would hope. Um, and for each of these, I'm going to go through them pretty quick, just to move us along time-wise. Uh, I'll try and get us out of here just after noon. I know we usually try to wrap right before noon, but I'll just read. For each of these, I'm just going to read a scripture and offer like a quick comment. So sin. Um, in Leviticus 23, the, the Jews have commemorated this day as Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. It's an annual national holiday in ancient Israel, and for some Jews till, still today, of repentance and fasting. So Leviticus 23, the Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves, literally means afflict and fast, and present a food offering to the Lord. So instead of you eating food, you take the food you would have eaten and you offer it back to God and you have 24 hours to lay on your face and just repent of the sins that have accumulated in that last year. It's like an annual reset of returning our hearts, softening our hearts and repenting back to God. And this is a line um, later in the Old Testament from the prophet Joel. Joel 2, verse 12 through 15. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. So again, there's something in our humanity, I think, innate in us, that when we recognize our error of our ways, our brokenness, our sin, it should lead us naturally to a returning, a turning, and often abdicating food is a part of that. Second one, loss. A whole, the holy moment of loss. The natural impulse when you experience a great loss is to shut down satisfaction and the desires of the flesh and your body. I mean, I can think of distinct moments in my life where I you know, got that phone call from a friend who just overdosed and passed away. 
And the natural response in that moment when you just hear of grieving heartbreak is not to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac. Your body is so finitely consumed with the depth of pain and emotion that you're experiencing, hopefully, that the natural impulse is to not eat. And that's why friends and family have to come and bring you food because you stop cooking and you stop grocery shopping. You forget to eat. 1 Samuel 20. This is uh, Jonathan and David and their friendship. Saul is kind of having his episodes where he's flipping and trying to kill David. And Jonathan responds this way in 1 Samuel 20, verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him and tried to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to indeed kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. And on the second day of the feast, he refused to eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Fear. Uh, Scott McKnight calls this body plea. So when we encounter fear or things that just overwhelm, feeling of loss of control, right? The natural response is desperation. And if we channel that desperation towards God, fasting is a natural response. Deuteronomy 9, verse 17. So this is the story of Moses has been up on the mountain fasting for 40 days with God. And the people are down at the bottom of the mountain wondering what on earth he's doing up there. And they melt all their jewelry and make these two golden calves, right? And he comes down from the mountain and he sees the people. And this is Moses recounting the story a second time in the book of Deuteronomy, not in Exodus, but a handful of decades later when the book of Deuteronomy is being written. Chapter 9, verse 17. So I, Moses, took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord. For forty days and forty nights I ate no bread and drank no water. Because all of the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger, I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And so Moses, in this instance, it's not his sin, but he's afraid of what might happen because of the sin of the nation of Israel. And the natural response is to not just plea and intercede and pray with his mouth, but to pray with his body in desperation. A sacred moment, the recognition of an injustice or the oppression of people. I'm just going to read this. This is like, uh, it's a little long. It's nine verses, but a pretty powerful chapter from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob for their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? 
Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? So basically, Isaiah is confronting Israel for practicing Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and yet with their lives, they're oppressing others. So they're doing religious hypocritical fasting to check the box, but then their lives do not display the integrity that a tender, humble heart, a person who genuinely fasts before God, should be living. Picking back up in verse 5, is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. And there is tons of evidence in the early church that people explicitly fasted for the sole purpose of taking the food they would have eaten and sharing it with those who didn't have food. So there is a natural response in us to even just a lifestyle of denying ourselves so that others might have, right? That it's an actual pragmatic alleviation of injustice. And then there's lots of history, uh, historical examples in church history of people fasting to petition on the behalf of the oppressed to make a statement. Two more. We're almost through it. Confusion. And the natural response of maybe not knowing what to do in a circumstance is to fast for discernment. While worshiping um, the presence of God and His holiness, right? We think, I think of the story in Acts 13 with uh, Saul and Barnabas. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so there's biblical testimony and story of people entering into spaces of fasting, not because fasting produces C, the result, but because out of desperation and confusion and not knowing where else to turn, they turn to God in prayer and fasting to create a single-mindedness so that they might alter their bodies and be able to actually hear from Him. Declutter the confusions. And there's actually, I haven't, I'm hearing this secondhand, I haven't looked up these studies, but there have been medical studies done that prove that the focus cogn cognitively, your brain actually can focus more clearly when you enter into a period of fasting and you don't eat food. And last one. In many ways, I would say this is, uh, this is the regular discipline of fasting, which I think keeps us alert and open, almost like a safeguard to make sure that those other five holy moments of moments of sin, loss, fear, oppression, confusion, don't go passing by unnoticed. So the, dis the regular discipline of fasting is because these moments are happening all the time. Are we aware of them? 
Are we creating space in our life so that we could actually recognize and respond to them? I mean, there's not a direct quote on this one. It's an it's a ingrained practice from church history. We know that Jesus fasted regularly on a weekly basis because he is ridiculed by the Pharisees for him and his disciples not fasting, right? So it was obviously the cultural expectation amongst early Jews that you were fasting Mondays and Thursdays on a weekly basis. And Jesus breaks from that, which is a helpful insight to us in any of these invitations to practices. They are never religious rules. They are never merit-based. They are for our good and our formation. We are not earning or producing or coercing God in any way through any of these spiritual practices. And then secondly, in 1 Corinthians 9, we get a hint of Paul referring to this idea of fasting as discipline. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, verse 25, chapter 9, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone who is running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So this is probably one of the closest New Testament allusions we get to Paul the phrase there of blows to my body is very similar to the Hebrew word we read earlier in Leviticus of afflict oneself. Um, so this is the closest we get, but a discipline of fasting, which we spent extensive time last month talking about uh, throughout church history, up until the time really of John Wesley in the 17th, 18th centuries. Fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays was a normative practice for most committed believers and followers of Jesus. So, in closing, I'll just end with this one scripture. And I woke up this morning with this scripture just kind of ringing in my head, bright and early. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and improve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. This is a classic kind of Christian verse we throw around. We love this verse, uh, especially preachers or teachers. We love this verse. We need some good Bible teaching. We need to renew your mind. <clears throat> and it's a little ironic that the verse right before it, Paul writes this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. And I, I don't know, I mean, I was, I was praying and prepping this teaching this week, and I could not help but think about Paul's story on the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus, and his body is basically stricken. He's struck blind. And he's so overwhelmed by the intensity of what has just happened to him, like the loss of a loved one, he's probably afraid and scared that he can't eat because he knows he's in the midst of a holy moment. And I can't help but wonder, and like, what better way to think about Paul's life from that Damascus Road moment till the end of his days as an embodied living sacrifice? 
Paul makes tents. He makes money when he needs to. But we know for sure Paul's purpose on the earth. He even says, I forget which letter it's in. Maybe someone here can quote it. Um, where Paul says, honestly, I'd rather be dead and be with Jesus. But it's better for you guys that I stay longer. Because he so embodies this and sees his entire life, his waking, breathing life, every interaction with every human being he meets is an expression of this living sacrifice. And that it's in the process of that expression of living sacrificially unto God in all of life, no secular sacred, it's there that the mind gets renewed by Christ. And I, I mean, I can't help but resonate with that. I remember, it's about 15 years ago now, I remember meeting Matt Holst when he came back to college at the ripe age of 27. A lot of people go to college for seven years. <laughs> and I remember through Matt getting introduced to this whole community of people who were far from perfect, but they had one thing in common they had encountered Jesus in such a deep way, such a profound way, that they could not help but see their entirety of their lives as an embodied living sacrifice unto him. And there was a freedom and a palpable, tangible reality of Jesus that I experienced meeting those people for the first time. And it changed the course of my life forever. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. And in and by doing that, our minds will be renewed and we will not be conformed to the cultural forces that are trying to shape us. So I'll just read this in closing and say a little prayer. We worship a crucified God who died and suffered in a body, bringing forgiveness, atonement, liberation. Fasting calls us back to our bodies, back to reality, and it's an anchoring practice for us as modern people in a disembodied, dualistic, cultural world. It reminds us that there's no sacred or secular, not in our bodies, not in our lives, and not in the world. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. May we too experience the renewal of the mind and an increased awareness of intimacy with God as we return to the embodied practice of our faith through fasting. So Father, I just ask for all of us that you would use these silly efforts, our failed efforts, to wake us up to the sacredness of our lives, the sacredness of the relationships and people, the sacredness of the jobs that we hold, the vocations we're pursuing, the families we lead, the friends we have. Would you wake us up to the sacredness that's all around us? Would we, like Paul, see our lives as a living sacrifice? And in that process, by following your ways, would our minds be truly renewed to the depths of our being? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.